I'm Emily Freeman. I'm here with Davis Bisky on the AWS Developers Podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Alex Wood, Senior Software Engineer, AWS Serverless Developer Experience. Alex, welcome. How did you get such a long title? Uh, you know, I just kept adding words to it. And after <laughs> 12 and a half years, uh, the, the title just gets longer and longer. <laughs> yeah, I saw you've been at Amazon for 12 and a half years. Tell me what that's been like. Well, originally, I was not part of AWS. I was hired out of college into the retail side of things. So I, I, I think it might still be true that if there is a slightly uncommon item anywhere on Amazon.com and it's out of stock, I might be to blame. Uh, I, I think some of uh, the old retail buying algorithms that I wrote still apply. So, so I, I, I am the one to blame. I, I, well, let's not put all Amazon.com uh, bugs on your lap, but I think it's funny when you stay somewhere long enough to see how your bugs develop. <laughs> like, it's like usually you leave before and then it's, it's someone else's problem. You're like, haha, I don't have to deal with this. Uh, Long-term ownership. Yeah, ownership, leadership principle. Well done. I can tell after, you've been at Amazon. After a few years there... Decided to do something totally different, switched into open source, uh, changed over to AWS, was on the Ruby SDK for about six years. Got the opportunity to write the Ruby runtime for AWS Lambda. And somewhere around doing that, I think I realized that my, my medium long-term career arc was trying to make it significantly easier to make applications that can scale, be fault tolerant, and be understandable to an average developer like myself. So I realized serverless was by far the easiest way to get there. So I switched over into writing serverless tooling and that takes me all the way to present day. That's amazing. Well, how did you go from Ruby to serverless? Like, What was that learning journey like? Yeah, it, it felt like a, a transition to specializing. Working on an SDK for AWS was interesting because you end up having to have a surface knowledge of basically every service that we have. So all the way from EC2 containers, serverless, any kind of managed service that we have, uh, you have to know enough about it that you can reproduce bugs, know how all the protocols work. And then going into the serverless world, it's just a really, really deep dive into, I mean, the way that people build serverless applications. So what are the services you're most likely to be using? So you get really deep into API Gateway, you get really deep into Lambda, you get deep into DynamoDB because it's a very common database choice. Um, you get a lot deeper into SQS, SNS, Kinesis, like a lot of the asynchronous event sources. You get into step functions. So it, it just ended up being a necessary like masterclass into a particular subset of that larger whole that I had been working with. And you know, obviously, it was often a lot harder to get deep, deep expertise in any one service because I think we had about 50 services when I joined the Ruby SDK team. And I've long lost count of how many we have now, but it's well over 200. What a great experience to come right into Amazon out of college at that point in time. What language was it that you were actually using? And I have to, 
if anybody hears birds, this is what's super cool right now. Emily's actually out on the porch <laughs> and their sun is coming down and I hear birds chirping. It's not it's in true. your head. It's actually, but it's just a fantastic <laughs> experience. I'm happy for you. So, Thank you. I love it outside. Yeah, I love it too. Go, go ahead, Alex. Like what? Yeah, I, when you yeah came right in, out of the gate, it was Java. Turning over into the Ruby SDK, obviously working on Ruby and then a lot of the tools that we work on in the serverless world, as you can go see on GitHub, are written in Python. So at a certain point, I just learned that programming languages are, you know, they almost get interchangeable at a certain point. That's true. It's uh, we actually we had a discussion with someone who was using all the different languages that they learned in their leadership style and kind of applying all the different schemas and everything from that of what you take from each thing. There's no AWS at that point when you're starting, right? Everything's on prem. I I think there was an AWS. Uh, I think it started as early as 2006, 2008. Yeah, I joined in 2010. So there was a there was AWS, but it was a lot smaller when I first joined. Yeah, um, I, I think I got on just as it was really, really, really starting to take off. But it was it was a pretty strong going concern by the time that I joined. So I was the uh, I was on the bandwagon rather than making the bandwagon. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, and then it's like this is a, a conversation. You know, having spent some time in developer tools now before developer experience. It's an ongoing conversation of internal and external. You know, what what have we actually built? What is that legacy of architecture and code of Amazon of 20 years versus what are the services that are actually in AWS? And I think that's a great kind of uh, point to talk about what you were talking about is that transition of serverless. So why don't we talk about the serverless permissions and AWS, uh, you know, the SAM connector and everything there. So I, I always like to baseline. So for folks that are just, you know, tuning in, can we start with like IM policies and, you know, resource policies and like all of that? Because I'm sure, did that exist when you were first starting that transition to serverless? Was that all right in the beginning and still the way that you think about these things? So IM policies and resource policies have been around for a long time. I, I think what has become interesting is the usage of them has become a bit more ubiquitous. So, so what do I mean by that? So back when I first started in AWS, working on the Ruby SDK, I think the most common application pattern we would see is, I've got a Ruby on Rails application. I'm deploying it onto EC2. There's a load balancer. There's an RDS database behind the scenes. Right. There's not necessarily a lot of IAM policies that are going to exist in that application, you're doing a lot more like VPC and network-based permissions. A lot of the IAM policies in those architectures would be developer accounts, deployment accounts, and how you set those up. Uh, and one of the trade-offs to that is now you're doing all of this authorization in the application level. So now transition to serverless and you have a world where you've probably got an API gateway you have a series of lambdas function. You have DynamoDB table, SQS queues, S3 bucket. Like you have all these different service components. And the most typical way that you're going to control access to those is your IAM policies coming out from compute resources or from resources that use IAM roles. 
or you have resource policies. So actually, stepping back for a second, when I say I am policies and resource policies, what's the difference? Uh, the difference is, and I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, and someone who knows I am really well is probably going to end up uh, replying to this and correcting me. But I'm excited for the notes, personally. The way that I like to think about it is I am roles and policies are an outbound permission. So if I have an I am role on Lambda, the I am policy is saying, these are the things that I can access. These are the resources I can access. Here's the actions I can use upon them. And a resource policy is on that target resource, basically saying, here are the actions I will allow to be done to me, and here are the resources that can do them. Right. So it's sort of the the inviting in permissions versus the outbound pushing permissions. And you can start to get into a bit more of why you might really prefer one over the other when you start to have permissions that go across accounts. Because obviously you can't create an IAM policy in my account where I say, I have access to everything in Dave and Emily's account. Uh, it's not a thing. Uh, there is no mechanism for them to even allow me to make it a thing. I have to have permissions to go assume a role in their account, which means that they have a resource policy on that I am role saying I can assume it. Or they have to have a resource policy saying Alex's account can come do things to my bucket. So there is a lot to learn because I am policies and resource policies are very powerful. They're very useful, but they're also going to be new to a lot of developers. It's not necessarily something you have any familiarity with if you haven't had a background in AWS. Exactly. When I was in Alexa and we find when Lambda launched and it was just a perfect match for Alexa skills, the biggest thing that time that we would spend, Alex, in, in hackathons and just getting developers ramped up was explaining I am because they had never seen anything like that before. And just getting the SDK connected and what that there were so many errors that would get thrown out. And it got into this discussion of like, what is AWS managing? Like, what are the defaults here? What are these managed policies? And what can I actually create? Uh, what, what do I do custom in this? And, you know, obviously as a developer, I just make everything admin, but don't tell anyone. What were, what is your thoughts on that? Like having things really broad, or, you know, what does that learning curve look like to be able to go in here and start messing around and building my own custom policies? So this is an interesting point because, you know, you mentioned the I made everything admin, don't tell anybody, which I, I think people end up doing sometimes. And no one sets out to do that because you know that it's a bad idea. It can create all kinds of potential issues in your application to do that. But, you know, it works and it feels like it's fast. And so the temptation is always there. So where I've been working on the serverless application model and the CDK has similar capabilities, there are a lot of things that we built in to try to give you permissions that work without having to resort to admin. So the types of permissions you want tend to be only the actions that I care about and only on specific resources. So for example, going from Lambda to DynamoDB, you probably don't want your application to have delete table permissions. You, you don't want 
uh, the ability for that, unless you're specifically making an admin function, but that's pretty rare. You know, typically you want to be able to put items, delete items, update items, do queries and scans. You also don't want to do it to every database. You, you want to, there's a specific table that you're talking about. So you want to have a limited set of actions, a limited set of resources. And Sam and CDK have had capabilities to do things like this for a while. So CDK has grants. Uh, Sam has had policy templates where you can say like, you know, DynamoDB, read, write. Um, you give it the table name or for CDK, you pass the table resource. And, and that works decently well. What we found is we wanted to take this a little step further because you still had to have some knowledge of the details of how permissions work. That's true. You know, for example, if you're talking about triggering a Lambda function, the permissions actually work very, very differently for SNS triggering a Lambda function versus SQS triggering a Lambda function. And now there's some nuance here because for SNS to trigger a Lambda, you need to have a resource policy on the Lambda saying SNS can deliver a message to me. Uh, for SQS triggering a Lambda, it's actually technically the Lambda reads from SQS to go find work. So the, the Lambda execution role needs to have permissions to read and manipulate that queue. But, you know, in other cases, like if you have a Lambda triggering a Lambda, you might just be able to say, hey, this Lambda can call invoke function on this other Lambda. So there's a directionality nuance that is sometimes hard to understand. And what connectors set out to do is just say, I can define sources and destinations in terms of a data flow, and it will figure out for me where do the permissions go and what is the directionality of them. And then we can kind of boil it down to the simplest uh, read and write terms, which give you a really good starting point. Okay, that makes sense. Um, stepping back for just a minute. So directionality would be something like, I want to be able to withdraw money from my bank, but I don't want the bank to be able to withdraw money from my account. So that, that would be like a directional permission. Does it, is that a, a solid analogy or no? Uh, there's... There's a slight bit of added nuance, I think. Yeah, um, Because in all of these cases, we want a resource to be able to trigger a Lambda. The challenge is the way that that works varies depending on the service. It, it is kind of a push versus pull thing. And so how do we make it so that you can kind of have that flow in the way you're describing of... You know, I want to be able to deposit to a bank, but it's almost as if different banks uh, say I have to pull money out of your account versus some saying you can push money into uh, an account, which might feel confusing. So how do we kind of reduce it to the way that the mental model works? And that's okay. where things like connectors try to come in as it tries to make it feel like the mental model. Are connectors part of of SAM or the serverless application model or CDK or both? So right now, they're a part of SAM. Okay. Uh, however, stay tuned. I, I can say, for example, that if you're familiar with Application Composer, uh, the visual builder that we recently released, permissions in there under the engine kind of work the same way. 
um, but it's an entirely different visual presentation. So, you know, when you drag an arrow between certain resources in Application Composer, it will figure out the directionality of where the permissions need to go. So if you drag the arrow from SQS to Lambda saying SQS is going to trigger this Lambda, it'll in the same way say, okay, I need to add permissions to the Lambda going outbound. I'm having so many flashbacks, Alex. It reminds me of push and pull in Win95. There were these Internet Explorer widgets that you could put. Do you remember this on your on your desktop? And it would go through a timer and it would pull down data and it would update. And it was the same exact thing. You never knew if something was happening locally or if it was fetching external resources. And I love how you're talking about this as directionality. So the whole idea here with AWS serverless connectors is that it's figuring out resources and directionality for me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to really reach for an analogy here, but I actually think there's a golf analogy. So golf has kind of turned into my uh, pandemic hobby. And when you look at, so connectors, I kind of look at as the game improvement clubs. So they they're going to try to make all your shots go straight and they're going to be very consistent and they have a much easier learning curve. So, you know, they're a bit more limited in feature set, but it makes things very straightforward and you get permissions that are very reasonable. So, you know, uh, I, I think so it reduces having to think about the directionality. It reduces having to understand what every action does um, and it scopes things down to resources. Like generally, if you have a reasonable set of actions, you scope to a resource, you're probably going to have a set of permissions that is going to make your application work and where your security posture is going to be very reasonable. Beyond serverless connectors, so where it might lead to or where you might choose to write your own policies is where you kind of talk about in golf terms like the the bladed irons, like the stuff the pros use, where you have to really know what you're doing, but you have a lot more control. So for example, you might realize, well, the way my application works, I don't do any scans. Uh, I don't use transaction APIs. I only use this subset of APIs. And furthermore, I might have five global secondary indexes on this table, but this application is only allowed to access one of them. Uh, or further, I think there are advanced conditions that DynamoDB offers where you can really have detailed constraints on what kind of items you can operate on. So, you know, it's also meant because you can see what the connectors generate and you can almost use that as a starting point to say, okay, now I want to get a bit more advanced I want to start editing things. I want to really like add control, but it gives you that very reasonable starting point. So you don't have to say, I'm going to throw admin on everything so I know it'll work. You can have a really good starting point that you can then start okay. to enhance and make more detailed over time. These resources that you're talking about, are all of these, they have to be SAM enabled? So right now for serverless connectors, we support a certain subset of service resources and we're expanding that over time. So for any services we or for any resources we support, you just reference them as a source or destination. 
you tell us the type of permissions you want. And if it's supported, then it'll generate the appropriate permission object for you automatically. And for, you know, we're trying to expand that over time. So we don't support absolutely every resource, but we're supporting a growing set of the most commonly supported ones. Got it. How do developers enable this? If you're using SAM, it's just another resource. Oh, okay. So you can look in the documentation for examples, but you just say, I want to make a serverless connector, or you can even embed it in any given source resource and just say, I want to connect to these destinations with these permissions, and it will create all the permission resources for you. It's incredible. So it essentially creates an interface and it, it kind of does a lot of the backend work for you. So you're not doing these sort of gross over uh, permitted <laughs> roles and such. And then you can dive in and actually tailor it, which I think is fantastic because you can you can customize it based on your needs, I'm assuming. Yeah. And you, you do end up having to switch to kind of writing your own policies. But because Sam will show you like what it generated... Uh, you can basically say like, okay, the thing that I generated as a policy or a resource policy is a starting point. And then I can go just make that policy and start to edit it. What do you find are the most successful characteristics of people who, who make the most use of this, these connectors and Sam in general? Yeah. So I think where this becomes the most helpful is where you are really starting to lean in to a lot of serverless best practices where I'm using managed services wherever possible. It's almost like there's a, there's a serverless ethos of code as a liability, really trying to reduce the amount of code that you write if there's a service that would just do it for you. You know, like why write your own queuing library when SQS exists? Why write your own workflow logic if step functions would do it for you? So you'll end up having all of these different resources and that's where serverless connectors can come most in handy because it's just going to help you, you know, I've got a Lambda, it's calling step functions, wire that up. Step functions is directly operating on a DynamoDB table, calls another Lambda, wire those up. And it just really is aiming to reduce that mental overhead and eliminate people ever just saying, star dot star, do everything. I don't know. Uh, we want to get rid of that while still enabling you to get applications working. Phenomenal. This is a, it's an amazing tool. I'm so glad you were able to come on and, and share about it. Looking forward, uh, whether at AWS or beyond, what has you most excited? So recently, I started playing around with Code Whisperer. Uh, I think the the generative AI thing is is someone who likes to play around with whatever is going on uh, in the tech world. Uh, I got intrigued by that, and I have recently started using Code Whisperer, and I have to say it kind of feels like magic. I was working on an application recently where you know I'm just writing some input validation logic for APIs, really like standard stuff, and you know it. I'm just saying like, all right, let's add a length constraint and it generates some code, which is like almost what I wanted. Like, it, like the, it's idea of like, oh, this is how you should implement a length constraint. It's like, yeah, basically. All right, let me tweak this a little bit for my style. Okay, let's go add a size constraint. Now it's generating something in my code style. 
Amazing. And I, literally, I'm just thinking, okay, now I'm going to add regular expression pattern constraints. Press enter, and it's like, oh, maybe you want a pattern constraint now. It's like, how did you know that? <laughs> what kind of sorcery is this? I said, I did not even start to write that. It's just like, oh, you probably you did a size constraint, a length constraint. You probably want a pattern constraint. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the moment that broke me. And, you know, now I'm having to find myself using Code Whisperer really often because it really, it it's pretty good. I... It's great. I, I honestly was a little skeptical of uh, AI generated code. And obviously you still want to make sure that you're not just blindly throwing in whatever it says, but you know, honestly it, it has been pretty dead on so far. We, we say don't use AI generated code blindly as if we haven't been copying and pasting and saying a prayer from stack overflow for the last decade. Like this is, it cracks me up. It's true. And, you know, maybe, you know, I'm a little bit of the uh, yelling at the uh, the kids to get off my lawn. But, you know, I started using it. It's like, oh, it's good. Like, yeah, that's what I was going to write. Like, you know, yeah. maybe we'll see if my opinion changes when I start to try to use Code Whisperer for uh, things I don't necessarily know how to do. Like, maybe I'm going to feel less comfortable. But for the things I do know how to do, it's like, yep, that's what I was going to write. You just saved me a bunch of time. You know, I, I, I look at it as since the internet, you know, when, when I was starting out coding, when I was a boy, you know, I had these books and I had to look things up in books, but since the invention of search engines and the internet coding for me has always been a crowdsourced operation, yeah. you, know, you know, and, and even, I would say even before the internet, what I was sourcing was the code I had written. Like I never threw a line of code out. I had everything and I would do local text searches to find things based on stuff I've already written. There was nothing worse than like file new document, right? Like any developer, I as, when I start writing code, I become an inherently lazy person. And one of the things I've started to like about AI generative tools like Code Whisperer is, you know, I, I know I have to write all these guardrails and checks and things, but like my lazy side really doesn't want to. And often it, it's going to, it's going to do it for me. Or it's like, you know, it's going to really make that error string really nice and detailed and well-written where I just want to go like, you did this should have been this bad. And it's, it's going to write like a nice little error message uh, that is human readable. And I don't have to go do an editing pass over my own code as often. It's, it, it's, it is the best if you self-identify as a lazy developer. I'm laughing because as you're saying this, tell me if you feel this out. So like, you know, everyone has different core personality types and I'm really high in agreeableness, which is like when I ask for people for things, I feel their pain if I'm asking for too much, if that makes sense. So if I actually, I feel, I'll give you an example. And this is for all the World of Warcraft fans out there this morning. I'm going through Wrath of the Lich King classic with a blood out. And I know it sounds nerdy. And I asked it this morning, I was like, what would be really good? And rather than me going and research this on Wowhead and spending like 15 minutes, I asked ChatGPT, I was like, can you go and create, I said, I'm playing this character. I'm here. This is where I'm at. I'm thinking in the next 20 levels, can you create a list or divide it out over each thing and your reasons for why you would pick that? And I'm, and I'm finding myself saying, please. And like, thank you so much. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm asking you to do all this. And it's an AI, but it's like, I find that the more that you can do that, 
Whereas I wouldn't go and ask a coworker if they could go and research this and give me the reasons why they chose that. I don't think I've ever asked a human being, why did you choose that? But it works really well in an AI scenario. So you could do that with code. You could say, give me the top three most used ways to access the SAM resource using DynamoDB. And then give me your reasons why you picked that. And it will. And it helps you think. You know, the whole why. I've never, like, there's no why, why in, in, in coding for me hasn't been part of that process now. And it's helping me be develop, a better developer and better in the way that I ask for information and get to that answer. Like, I, I do feel a little bit less guilty when I know all I'm doing is just, uh, I think, like, lexical tokens to just say, like, why did you do that? Or could you please do that again, but just a little bit differently? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've used ChatGPT as a uh, Dungeons and Dragons dungeon master assistant. Oh, it's the best. And it does seem to have a tendency to give every single character a Lord of the Rings name. And I feel like if it was a human, I'd just be like, no, not everyone is named Gimli. Why are you doing this? So I, I do feel a little bit less guilty saying, like, no, do that again. I do not want any Lord of the Rings character names, please. Yeah. Make something I, up. You'll appreciate this, Alex. So, in creating a Forsaken Death Knight in WoW, which is basically a skeleton knight, I couldn't think of a name. I've been playing this game for almost 20 years. I couldn't think of a name. So I was like, give Billy me- skeleton face. Yeah. Check this out. And I said, pull on exactly what you said. I said, pull on Lord of the Rings lore, World of Warcraft lore, and Dungeons and Dragons lore. I have the cool- Every time I see this character's name now, I get happy. You know what it was? Necrobine. Okay, that's a great name. Metal. Isn't that cool? And I said, thank you. That's a great name. And it replied, thanks. I feel it really captures the essence of a skeleton knight. <laughs> Enjoy playing your character. And I was like, thanks. Yeah, that's probably better than Skelly McSkeleton face. I, that would be mine. I'm like, I'm all out. I'm all out of ideas. And I'm just going to Not only is it a good worker, B, but it comes with a positive attitude. I love this. That's thing. right. Yeah. Alex, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at Alex W. Wood. You can find me at uh, Blue Sky on alexwood.codes. And I feel like people are going to listen to this podcast in two years, and they're either going to – I will be curious if the Blue Sky thing even registers in two years. We'll find out. My I'm bet is that this curve, one's going to stick around. Yeah. I'm ahead of the curve or saying something that no one's going to recognize in two years. <laughs> Well, Alex, either way, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Take Thank care. you so much.